This morning in your Bible congregation, we would invite and encourage you to turn to Psalm 145. Now you can find this in your pew Bible on page 721. In addition to Psalm 145, we'll also be reading this morning from the Belgic Confession, Article 1. And you can find that in the back of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal on page 855. Uh, So our scripture reading from the psalm which we just sang from, Psalm 145, and then the Confession, Belgic Confession, Article 1, and that's on page 855 in the back of your Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Hear now together the reading of the Word of God. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works." All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, gracious in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless His holy name forever and ever. In addition to that passage, we read one verse from John 17. John 17, verse 3, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 1. And there it is written, We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially young people and boys and girls, I want you to think for a moment of how the Bible begins. It begins with a profound simplicity. The Bible does not begin with the laying out of philosophical arguments for the existence of God. 
It does not list four or five proofs for the existence of God. But boys and girls, I trust you know how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. Pause just for a moment in the midst of all of the busy clamor of this earthly life and just ponder those simple words and that profound truth that they reveal. In the beginning, God. I would not make this an absolute law, but I would give you this point of encouragement. If you ever find yourself overwhelmed by the realities of this earthly life, just pause and repeat that phrase to yourself. In the beginning, God. Now, of course, it goes on and talks about the work of God, about the redemptive work of God. But it begins with God. And so also must our faith. To quote one Reformed author, the Reformed faith, which I would just add by way of uh, explanation, we believe the Reformed faith to be the biblical faith. That is, the objective truths that are clearly revealed within Scripture that are summarized by our confessional documents. Uh, the Reformed faith, the biblical faith, is God-centered. And this morning, all we simply want to attempt to do with the Spirit's blessing and help is to proclaim that the Christian faith is God-centered. And our Christian faith, whether we speak of that as individual persons or collectively as a family or as a congregation, our Christian faith must also be God-centered. And our Christian faith expresses itself in our daily life. So our life must be God-centered. In contrast to this world, which is so often focused upon oneself, our eyes this morning are drawn away from ourselves and lifted up to the one true being of eternity and of infinity. This being with all of His glorious perfections or attributes whom we call God. God is first. And God is to be first in all aspects of our life. We want to consider this truth as it's revealed, for example, in Psalm 145 and John 17, verse 3. And as summarized, we believe faithfully by Article 1 of the Belgic Confession, underneath this theme, our belief concerning God. Uh, we'll unpack this with three points. First of all, the knowledge of God. And then secondly, the perfections of God. And then thirdly, the response to God. So our belief concerning God. Uh, a word about that theme. Uh, we cannot exhaustively say everything there is to say about God. Humanly, it's impossible, for God has far surpassed our finite understanding. But we can, based upon the revelation given in Scripture and the illumination given by the Holy Spirit, we can say some true things about God. We cannot say everything about God, but we can say something about God. And we do so this morning looking first at the knowledge of God, then secondly, the perfections of God, and then thirdly, the response of God. When we talk about in our first point the knowledge of God, we are not referring to the knowledge that God has of Himself. God knows Himself perfectly. Now, you and I, as human beings, we have been given the capacity to know. 
We have been given an intellectual capacity. And do not despise your intellectual capacity. Do not neglect your mind. The formation of your mind and the transformation of your mind. This is part of what sets us apart from uh, the brute uh, animal realm. We have been created in the image of God with the ability to know God. Now that ability, of course, was impacted dreadfully by the fall into sin. And so there is a certain cognitive impact of sin uh, that is only removed by the work of the Holy Spirit. But don't neglect your mind. We have an ability to know God, but we never know God as God knows Himself. God knows Himself perfectly. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have dwelt together in an eternal knowledge of fellowship. But, but that knowledge of God that He has of Himself and that He also has of all things, all things actual and possible, God knows. And He never learns anything. You know, boys and girls, we learn things. And, and so you begin uh, with the simple counting of numbers in the mathematical realm. One, two, three, and, and maybe by the age of three or four, uh, you're able to count to ten or twenty, and you, you do that for your mom and your dad and your grandpa and your grandma. And then you go off to school or you begin schooling at home, whatever context, and you begin to add numbers and then subtract numbers, and then multiply numbers, and then divide numbers. And, and then there comes that time in your mathematic training that they throw letters in with the numbers. And you advance to greater and greater levels of mathematical knowledge. You learn things. God never learns because He always knows. This truth ought to begin to fill us with a sense of awe, wonder, and amazement. Behold our God, the all-knowing Being who knows everything and yet has never learned anything. But what we are actually talking about here is our knowledge that we have of God. And this is a knowledge of foundation. This knowledge is foundational. What do we mean by foundation? Foundation in the construction realm is that element that undergirds the entire structure. And so if you're building a house, you begin, of course, with the excavation. But then comes the laying of the foundation, the solid footing, usually, uh, of a substance of concrete that's strong and movable, supportive. And from there, you construct the rest of the structure. Knowledge of God is foundational. This is why we read John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. Now, don't make the concept of eternal life too small or too narrow. Eternal life is not simply the escapement of hellish agony. Eternal life is not simply the forgiveness of sins. Although you might say that is a central element of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. But never forget the words of Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. The knowledge of God, the covenantal knowledge of God, the fellowship that then results from that covenantal knowledge of God. And this is foundation for all true religion. And what is religion? Uh, we could say that religion is the, the knowing and then also the serving of the one true God. And, and that's why the Lord begins with that first commandment as He leads out His covenantal people from Israel, uh, rather Egypt. And He says to Israel, I am the Lord your God. 
You shall have no other gods before Me. Now again, remember the context of the polytheism of Egypt. Egypt had all kinds of gods. In contrast to that, the Lord says to His covenantal people, you will have one God because there is only one God. And you know this. And knowing it, you will then respond to it and you will react to it in the proper way. This becomes foundational, this knowledge of the one true God for our practical life also. So that the Christian who knows there is one only true God lives with a certain purpose within life. And one of the most distressing things that I see within our culture, and it it impacts those who are older and those who are in the middle of the ages of life, and especially those who are young, is what I call just a lack of purpose in life. And, And it breaks my heart honestly. I had the opportunity just to illustrate not to put anybody down, but just to illustrate, last night on our way home uh, from a social activity, we had to stop at Walmart for a few things. And, and there sat a number of people on the curb outside Walmart, I assume on some type of work break. And as I looked upon them with these thoughts of this sermon in my mind, they looked like they had absolutely no sense of purpose in life. Just simply going through the motions. I didn't actually do it, but I wanted to roll my window down and just ask them, what are you living for? But then I asked myself the question. And I asked you the question. What are we living for? The answer has to be ultimately we are living for the God whom we know. This is the knowledge that is foundational and it is a knowledge of faith. Hebrews 11 uh, verse 6 emphasizes this, but without faith it is impossible to please Him for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Uh, Now make no mistake about it, faith is not some type of leap in the dark. Faith is a certain knowledge. It is a sure knowledge. Christian faith is not just simply saying, well, I have looked at all of the possibilities about the origin of things and about the great purpose of everything, and I've just kind of thrown my lot in with this direction. I'm not really sure. There's all sorts of possibilities, but I just kind of chose this one because of my upbringing or because of my cultural influences. Christian faith is... The work of the Holy Spirit within the heart of a person by which that person says, I know God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we make that wonderful Christian confession every Sunday evening. I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this faith is based, of course, upon God's self-revelation as that's given especially in Scripture. Uh, And the next weeks and the next articles of the Belgian Confession will deal extensively uh, with God's self-revelation. So we simply uh, postpone that. Uh, But we want to emphasize that Christian faith is always based upon God's act of self-revelation. How do we know God? By virtue of the fact that God has shown Himself to us. 
Where has He shown Himself to us? Well, in the entire realm of creation, but especially within the Word of God. That's why the Reformed faith is so emphatic upon Scripture alone as the foundation of our Christian faith. And not only Scripture alone, but all of Scripture. We don't just simply pick a text here or there, but we take the full revelation of God, especially as that is revealed through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we make that the basis of our knowledge of the one true God of heaven and of earth. And we believe that in our hearts. Notice uh, how the author of the Belgian Confession captures this. We all believe in our hearts. And of course, he's not exactly quoting, but the reference clearly is to what Paul writes in Romans 10. With the heart one believes. Now yes, of course, the mind is involved, but this is not simply some type of historical knowledge. This is a true saving knowledge that in my heart, in the very deepest essence of who I am as a human person, I know God. I know He exists. And I know something about who He is. Believing that in our hearts, this flows into our mouths and out of our mouths as we confess that we know God. Well, then we can continue because the question will arise, what do you know about God? And that brings us into our second point, uh, the perfections of God. And we want to simply begin by looking briefly at the name God as it's given in Scripture. That's why we use the word God. Because God Himself uses that word to reveal who He is and what He is. Uh, to summarize, the name God describes the One who alone possesses the majesty. We borrow that quote. The One, the one Being. Now some of this is a bit elementary, but we just want to make sure that we are covering all of our a basis, God is a being, not simply an idea or an impersonal power, but a being, the one who possesses the majesty. And so the name God reveals the existence of one single supreme spiritual personal being. Oh, that no doubt is a mouthful, so we'll repeat it. The name God reveals the existence of one single, supreme, spiritual, personal being who is self-existent. In contrast to that, and here we need to engage in some apologetics, in contrast to that truth that there is one only supreme, spiritual, personal being, uh, there are all of the errors, all of the lies, all of the heresies, for example, uh, of atheism. The fool hath said in his heart, Psalm 14, verse 1, that there is no God. And you and I, as we live out the Christian life, we do so in a culture and in a context. And we don't say this in a mean type of a way. We say this in a, a, a sobering type of a way. We are called to live out our Christian faith in the midst of fools. Foolish individuals who lack wisdom, who say with increasing arrogance and brashness, there is no God. In contrast to that, we say there is a God. 
And that congregation is the conflict of worldviews that has existed ever since the fall and will continue to exist ever until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to be well versed in the foundations of the faith because as we go forth from day to day and week to week, confessing that we believe that there is one God, we will be confronted with those who say there is no God. And when we become a bit unsettled by their abrasive attack on our Christian faith, we need to draw a deep spiritual breath and remind ourselves of the words with which we began this morning's sermon, in the beginning, God. But not only atheism, there's also the dangerous heresy of agnosticism. Agnosticism denies the possibility of knowing that there is a God. And I believe, and I don't have any scientific footnote evidence, so you can charge me with just using anecdotal evidence, but I believe there is a growing celebration of agnosticism. What do I mean by that? And I find this especially among those who are younger, who have studied but have never come to a knowledge of the truth. They seem to celebrate the fact that they know nothing. And they seem to celebrate the fact that they know nothing with absolute certainty about God in the face of those who would profess that they know something of certainty about God. Uh, So the Christian stands and says, I know that there is one God and that He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the agnostic says, I don't know anything. And I can't know anything. I'm always studying Reading, listening, contemplating, going this way and going that way, but I'm never coming to a certain knowledge. And I tell you that that person is the most confused, the most unsettled, the most filled with discouragement and despair. And yet, they celebrate the fact that they profess The inability of ever knowing anything with certainty. And it is especially to that person that you and I are called to display our faith as a light. And to look upon them with compassion and profess, well, we do believe something with certainty. And that is the existence of one only true God. We could go on. You could talk about pluralism, of course. Uh, that is becoming quite prevalent within our culture, within our society. Uh, those who say there are many, many gods. Many, many ways to God. And all, all that goes along with this pluralistic type of culture must be rejected by those who would hold sincerely to the Christian faith. Now, there are many inventions of idols that individual persons profess to be gods, but there is only one true God. And He reveals something of His attributes or His perfections. We cannot define God, but we can describe God. And we do so somewhat briefly this morning, following the attributes that are listed as the Belgic Confession summarizes Scripture. This God is eternal. What that means, boys and girls, is that God always has existed. There was never a time in which God did not exist. Now, this can be impossible to get our minds around fully. But you can think of it in relationship to ourselves. There was time before I existed and there was time before you existed. But the same is not true of God. He has always existed. 
And you can allow underneath the governance of the Word of God for your mind to think upon these things. And then just to step back and be filled again with this sense of amazement and wonder. That before there was ever anything in the created realm, God existed. And that He always will exist. And that He exists in a sense in which He is incomprehensible. We can never fully know God. Now, we, we emphasize this, so we'll be brief in our first point. We can truly know God, but not fully know God. And one of the results of this is that the more a person actually comes to know God in a true sense of the word, the more a person will realize how little they know about God. You can think of Moses. In Exodus 34, as he's confronted with the theophany of God through the burning bush, what does Moses do in that passage? Does he sit back and uh, kind of, you know, in an arrogant way, hmm, let, let me contemplate what I see about God here in the burning bush. And, and then let me just uh, debate this amongst myself and amongst my colleagues and amongst my peers and kind of exalt myself with my own theological knowledge. The Apostle Paul also says that he was lifted up into the third heaven. He saw things that he could not even speak of. But then a thorn was given to him in the flesh, lest he would exalt. And the great danger is that we begin to study an incomprehensible God and we begin to congratulate ourselves with our knowledge of this incomprehensible God. I've often looked at my diploma that I received from Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary that says Master of Divinity. And I've thought, if anyone should ever pretend to have mastered the divinity, it is not the divinity that He has mastered. We can never master the divine. Arrogant theologians are a contradiction. If you really know God, you will have to confess, yes, I know Him. And yet, He is far beyond my comprehension. And so Moses made haste, bowed down, in a posture of humility before the burning bush. We ought to do likewise. Not only eternal, incomprehensible, but invisible. God is a Spirit. Just think of the wind as an old song that plays in my mind because it played in our vehicle over and over and over when our children were younger. God in His essential divine being does not have a body, doesn't have hands. Now yes, of course, the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ had a body and has hands. And the Scripture often uses anthropomorphic language speaking about the hands or the eyes of God. But God is a spirit and that He's invisible. And he's unchangeable. This is a remarkable attribute also. We are constantly changing in our appearance and in our plans and in our purposes. But thanks be to God, as Malachi says, that our God is an unchangeable God. Because our God is unchangeable, we are not consumed. Just imagine for a brief moment if God were fickle in His emotions. If God's heart of affection towards us depended upon our actions. If God were... Uh, like some of the idols of the, the nations, if God were a, a being who today could love us and tomorrow could hate us, all of our comfort would be lost. All of our confidence 
would be eroded. But our God is an unchangeable God, especially as He has established His covenant of grace with us through the Lord Jesus Christ so that His purposes never change and His plans never change. And His plan ultimately is to glorify Himself through His Son Jesus Christ by establishing and advancing a redemptive kingdom that includes persons such as you and I. Now, our world is always changing, but you can argue the more it changes, the more it reveals that it really stays the same. But in a changing world and in changing times, we find this solid bedrock of confidence that our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, we could, of course, go on uh, through these perfections, but I just simply want to draw your attention to the fact that our God is the overflowing source of all good. God is good in and of Himself. That is, He is exactly what He is supposed to be. But don't ever make the mistake of pretending that you and I can define what God should be. We find this within our own hearts and within the Reformed churches even, that we like to fabricate a God after our own desires. I cringe when I hear someone say, well, I think God is like this. If you think God is like the way you think He is because you want Him to be that way, check yourself. God is good, meaning that He is exactly what He should be. As He, as the Supreme Being, defines that goodness. But then His goodness flows over. And it flows unto us. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. And this also has a practical impact as we are drawn to imitate the psalmist in Psalm 145, verse 5. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of Your majesty and on Your wondrous works. Because His works are good. And I would encourage you to ask yourself in the deepest most secretive part of your soul. Do you believe that God and His works are good? Do you believe that God is good in all that He does? You see, this ought to be a truth that is experiential to our very hearts that then motivates us to have the proper response to God. And that's our third point of consideration this morning. All of this knowledge including a knowledge of the perfections of God or the attributes of God or the characteristics of God, knowing God as He is revealed within His Word will produce a response. That response will be a response of trust. Those who truly know that God is good and that He is the overflowing fountain of all good will trust Him, will place their reliance upon Him And here we reference you uh, not only to Psalm 145, uh, but also think of Psalm 27, verse 13, where the psalmist says, I would have lost heart. You know what it means to lose heart? To lose hope? To be overwhelmed with a sense of despair? As Reverend Pontier mentioned last Sunday night, the statistics of young people who are filled with losing heart or despair are overwhelming, are tragic, are sad. The psalmist found himself almost to that point. I would have lost heart because of the difficulties that he experienced. 
Well, why didn't he lose heart? I would have lost heart unless I had believed. Believed what? Believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. You see, the only antidote for despair, the only antidote for a a sense of despondency, the only antidote against losing heart is to believe. To believe that we would see and experience and taste something of the goodness of our Lord. And and, and not just simply in some far-off realm. But the psalmist says that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, both today, but also in the new heaven and in the new earth. And so... Beloved congregation, especially to anyone who finds themselves this morning on the brink of despair, who comes maybe even into this sanctuary saying, I'm about ready to lose heart. My Mondays begin terrible and my Wednesdays are even worse and my Fridays are some of the loneliest days of life. Believe. Believe that you would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's what it means to trust. Think of Peter in that well-known example of when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ walking on water. And Peter, with all of his rashness, which we can appreciate to some extent, but also we criticize from time to time, uh, Peter gets out of the boat. And you've probably heard this over and over. We just repeat it by way of reminder this morning. He begins walking towards the Lord Jesus Christ with his eyes of faith fixated upon Jesus Christ, and he walks on water. But then what does he do? He looks down and he sees the the waves as a result of the winds. You might say he looks and he sees the troubles of this earthly life. And he begins to sink. And the same is true of us. So maybe on a Sunday we're reminded of the supremacy of our God and we go forth and we, we walk by faith and our eyes are lifted up. But then Monday comes and Tuesday follows and Wednesday in sequence and we begin to experience something of the wind and the waves and we look and we become consumed by the reality of the wind and the waves and we begin to sink. Well, what are we to do then? Complain about how windy it is and how wavy it is? Congregation, no one ever fixed life's problems by complaining about life's problems. Fix your eyes upon God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only solid antidote for doubt and fear. And then, trusting God, worship God. The worship of God is to acknowledge Him as God and to express that He is worthy of being praised and of being glorified. And that's why we read and sang from Psalm 145. We just simply reference you again uh, to the opening verses. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Well, why? Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Congregation, this is eternal life. The act of faith in God, especially the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives a sense of confidence, a sense of security, a sense of peace that then produces the act of worship. And so the nations clamor and this fallen world would seek to drag us down. 
but be reminded of the powerful, profound simplicity of the opening of the Word of God. In the beginning, God. And know that this is eternal life. That you, I, we, know God. In and through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we do glorify Your great name because You alone are worthy to be praised. You are the one eternal spiritual being who is a holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do humbly request that You would teach us who You are and then produce the appropriate response of a humble trust and of faith and of a lifetime of worship of You, the one true living God. We ask then for Your blessing upon these words this morning. For Jesus' sake, Amen.